This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, September the 23rd, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the weekly news panel is looking very internationally. We'll start by discussing the developments in the Russia-Ukraine war. And in a very related story, we'll share our thoughts on the UN Secretary General's assessment of the world as the General Assembly got together this week in New York. And then we bring things a little closer to home as we discuss a variety of issues related to affordability and financial stresses in Canada. But let's begin the show with our top story of the day. We'd shared some speculation with you yesterday in the morning. Well, it has been confirmed. COVID-19 vaccines will no longer be mandatory for international travel in Canada after September the 30th. Mia Rabson has the details. The federal cabinet order enforcing mandatory vaccinations at the border expires at the end of next week and will not be renewed. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has signed off on that decision. The expiry will also put an end to all required COVID-19 testing for international travellers. The Cabinet hasn't yet made a decision about whether to suspend rules requiring people to wear masks on airplanes and trains. That rule is separate from the vaccine and testing order, and a discussion about what to do about it is ongoing. Mia Rabson, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Let's turn to climate. We know Hurricane Fiona is expected to hit Atlantic Canada later, but currently the hurricane is pounding Bermuda with rain and wind. Tom Rivers files this report. Authorities in Bermuda opened shelters and closed schools and offices ahead of Fiona. People knew what was coming and prepared. My doors, because I am right on South Shore, my patio doors are boarded up. They've been boarded since Tuesday. With Fiona on the move, the Canadian Hurricane Centre has issued a hurricane watch over extensive coastal expanses of Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland. Tom Rivers, ABC News at the Foreign Desk. As you heard Tom Rivers mention, Fiona is expected to hit Atlantic Canada later today. John Lord, the minister responsible for Nova Scotia's emergency management office, is urging people to brace for a significant storm. That includes securing outdoor items and trimming or removing damaged trees or limbs, having a 72-hour emergency kit ready, charging cell phones and devices, and ensuring you have a safe and secure place to stay. Stay home from the storm and keep away from areas in your home that could be hit with flying debris like doors and windows. Halifax Mayor Mike Savage wants people to stay up to date with conditions and emergency orders. If you live near the coast, you must be prepared to leave on short notice and pay close attention to possible evacuation orders. Throughout our entire Halifax region, you should be prepared for downed trees, extended power outages and local flood conditions. Environment Canada predicts Fiona will reach Nova Scotia waters by late tonight before passing through the province's eastern mainland, Cape Breton and Prince Edward Island on Saturday. Forecasters expect Fiona to move up to Quebec's lower north shore and southeastern Labrador early on Sunday. 
flipping to the other side of the continent. People are picking up the pieces along Alaska's western coast after the remnants of Typhoon Murbuck brought tidal surges and winds to some of America's most remote villages. About 21,000 people living along a 1,600-kilometer stretch of coastline were impacted by the storm. Governor Mike Dunleavy says there has been significant damage to roads and homes. It's a large, major natural disaster. Stretched over 1,000 miles of our coastline. So in terms of preparation, when you're dealing with something of that magnitude, uh, you, uh, you do the best you can to prepare for it. You can't stop it. Obviously, we know that. About 130 members of the Alaska National Guard and other military organizations have been activated to help remove debris and clean up after the storm. Let's get to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Yesterday we asked you, have you tried a trending challenge on social media? 20% of you said yes. 80% of you said no. Today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Do you keep an emergency supply kit in your home? If yes, please comment on what it contains. Of course, this relates to the storm that Atlantic Canada is expecting later today to last throughout the weekend. So it's a yes or no question, but certainly I'd love for you to chime in by replying to the tweet or quote tweeting or jumping into the comments section on Facebook and telling us what you keep in your kit. Mine is simple. A flashlight, a portable battery charger for my devices, a couple granola bars, well, about 10 granola bars slash protein bars for a bit of eats. And I also keep some AA batteries and a AM radio because the one thing to keep in mind is that uh, you may lose your internet in times of an emergency. So very wise to keep something that can keep you connected to important notifications because typically that AM band is uh, AM and FM band is going to be a little bit more stable even in an emergency. So like to keep a couple basics around there to uh, get out in a tricky situation. Alex Smythe, what about you? Do you keep an emergency kit around the house? I We keep all the supplies necessary for, for the kit, but it's never really in like a kit format if that makes sense like we we have you know uh blankets food water batteries flashlights uh radios all the necessary things that you want to just you know they're in their own separate locations we just happen to know where they are i don't know if that's a good thing especially when it comes to you know an emergency you never know what's going to happen how frantic or, or chaotic something might be so it, i i think probably after seeing this question maybe i should you know consolidate everything into one place just in case we need it in case of emergency. Yeah, I had something of a come-to-Jesus moment after the Ottawa tornadoes in 2018 that basically knocked out power to my building for about three days, and uh, it was surreal. We don't have time for me to walk you through my entire experience over the course of those couple days, but it was weird, and uh, food and battery power were uh, two things that I realized I desperately need in crunch time. Let's bring in Eliza Rocco. Do you keep a emergency kit around the apartment so i'm in the same boat as alex i i have a lot of the items recommended for an emergency kit but they are all just scattered throughout my apartment um i do have a first aid kit i have um matches i have lighters i have um candles i have a flashlight i also have <laughs> lighters but they're not for emergency reasons <laughs> 
well, you never, you never know. What you need, <laughs> well, right? Yeah, it's true. In an emergency situation, I will have lots exactly, of lighters. Exactly, exactly. Um, I have cash. I have cans of food. Yeah, but um, I, I think I'm going to run home later today and uh, just put all of those things in Keep one Keep them a little place. more organized. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've got a little shelf in my kitchen that has all that stuff kind of all in one spot. So it's a grab and go if I need to, if I ever find myself in that situation. Eliza, thank you for this. Thank you. That's Eliza Rocco. You can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also catch up with Alex Smythe, who has the national weather forecast. This is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. As we heard earlier, Hurricane Fiona is expected to cause a lot of havoc on the eastern coastline. So starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain this morning and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The special weather statement for Hurricane Fiona is in effect. The high is 21. Over to Halifax, Nova Scotia, rain is expected on and off throughout the day as the hurricane warning is also in effect there due to Fiona and 14 is the high. In Montreal, Quebec, a mix of sun and clouds in the high is 13. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy but clearing up this afternoon and 13 is the high. In Toronto, Ontario, it's sunny and a high of 16. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's mainly sunny and the high is 15. Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's cloudy with sporadic showers today and 15 will be the high. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's cloudy with possible showers this morning, but then clearing up in the afternoon with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and 21 is the high. In Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly sunny, which will become a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 20. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly sunny and the high is 21. Up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's cloudy with a 60% chance of showers this morning and 14 is the high. In Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of showers and 16 is the high there. And finally, in Victoria, BC, it's also cloudy with a chance of showers, but 14 will be the high. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, we kick off the weekly news panel and consider the most recent developments in the Russia-Ukraine war. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It is now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday morning, which means we assemble the weekly news panel. Let's say hello to one of our panelists, Joita Gupta, who's down the hall in Studio One. Good morning, Joita. Good morning, Dave. Joita, it's so nice to have you so close yet so far away. <laughs> you took the words from my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll try not to uh, bother you during the taping of The Pulse later. I'll try not to walk through any of those important shots. Uh, Joita, let's jump into our first story. We're just endeavoring to reconnect uh, with Michelle. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says Russia's decision to mobilize reservists shows Moscow's not serious about negotiating an end to the war. Zelensky says Russia must be sanctioned for its invasion of Ukraine. ...has been committed against Ukraine and we demand just punishment. The crime was committed against our state borders. 
The crime was committed against the lives of our people. The crime was committed against the dignity of our women and men. European Union foreign policy chief Joseph Burl is promising new sanctions against Russia after the escalation. These threats jeopardize in an unprecedented scale international peace and security. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also condemned the Russian escalation in the war. His partial military mobilization, his nuclear threats, as well as Russia's rushed referendums to try to annex parts of Ukraine are unacceptable. Putin's behavior only goes to show that his invasion is failing. Joita, you want us to revisit these developments in Ukraine. What do you want us to explore? So much to explore in this particular story, Dave. It is a rapidly developing story, one that has dominated the headlines in the last week. And there are many threads to pull apart. The threat of a nuclear weapon uh, launch is one that I think everyone takes very seriously. And that's certainly where Putin is going with some of the rhetoric we've heard coming out of the Kremlin. And we've also seen that the strategy to make threats about nuclear weapons and to hold rushed referenda in several provinces which have been occupied by Russia over the course of this war has been met with consternation from, you just heard Justin Trudeau, but also from other leaders across the world. And through all of this, there are questions looming large about what the international response should be Could the UN play a role here? The UN General Assembly has also taken place this week, and the Ukraine conflict has been a major point of discussion at the UN General Assembly. And beyond all of that, I think it it brooks the larger question of where do ordinary people go here? We're not just talking about people in Ukraine whose lives have been deeply disrupted because of this conflict. I, I, you'll forgive the understatement there. But also people in Russia who are now protesting this conflict, Dave, especially with Vladimir Putin, uh, Putin calling for the, uh, uh, the reservists. And, and the, the, now there's a lot of protests around that. So, so much to unpack in this particular story. And I think maybe a place to really start that conversation is what kind of a response we take right here in Canada. So let's start there. Let's start with the Canadian response. Certainly, uh, can't, Justin Trudeau and, and the federal government have been uh, supportive in terms of supplying weapons, in terms of supplying money, support. They've already taken a pretty strong role. You've heard the prime minister talking quite a bit this week at the UN Assembly about the situation in Ukraine. So we come to Michelle. Michelle, do you imagine the Canadian role may change here or do you expect the status quo? I honestly don't imagine it will change a whole, whole lot just because getting involved in inactive armed conflicts is, has never historically been Canada's strong suit. Uh, where I'm expecting to see more dialogue, and I think it'll be interesting to watch, is going to be around immigration response. Uh, there has been a lot of effort rolled out so far in terms of welcoming Ukrainian refugees, although their arrival here has not been smooth and the execution of those programs still leaves something to be desired. I don't imagine those needs are going to change anytime soon, but I'm also interested to see how that's going to impact on what Joita was referencing earlier in terms of the Russian mobilization, 
now ordinary citizens are going to be roped in. There were some interesting figures flying around about flights filling up rapidly within the first 24 hours after that announcement was made. For context, I thought this was very striking. That's the first time that they've tried to do conscription and mobilization on this kind of scale since the Second World War. Mm. So this is a big step for them. And obviously it hasn't gone down very well among at least some of the Russian people. There were there were anti-war protests across the country, hundreds of arrests. Uh, like I said, lots of people trying to skip out of town and, and get a flight out of there, a one-way flight. So in terms of Canada's role, I'm going to be interested to see how they handle that now that there is that additional wrinkle in the refugee uh, crisis. But in terms of additional help, it's possible. Um, certainly, there's been call for Canada to offer more aggressive types of arms than what has been provided so far. We'll be interesting to see if that actually comes to pass. But Ukraine has been able to fight back some offensives in recent months. So I don't know. I, I don't think there's a huge appetite, at least politically, for Canada to step up its its armed part of this of the support for Ukraine. Yeah, we, we spoke mm -hmm. pretty extensively to about this with uh, Professor Marta uh, Dychuk from Western University yesterday about uh, what's going on in the ground in regards to that 300,000 people conscription, especially from some of the outer reaches of the Federation, uh, not mm -hmm. necessarily the wealthy folks in Moscow, but uh, a lot of ordinary folks from the far reaches of the country and what kind of political challenge that creates domestically. I fully suspect the Canadian role is going to be about status quo. Uh, we don't have the military capacity to really go yeah. above and beyond other than just more money and more of the type of weapons that we're giving. The really heavy artillery is going to come from the United States, from Britain, from France, from way more industrialized military powers. But Joita, what do you expect in regards to the Canadian role? I didn't expect that being down the hall from you would result in this kind of an extreme mind melt, Dave. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's, it's the water. It's the water in the coffee machine in this place. Uh, but yes, I think in terms of military aid, um, I suspect we'll see the status quo continue. Uh, I know that... Um, in June of last year, the government did commit to $626 million in military aid, and that has, you know, that has included things like equipment, some of which has been rolled out. Uh, but Ukraine is asking for more military aid in the form of um, armament and weapons. And I'm not sure if Canada is going to go along with that request for increased military aid. It's, as Michelle pointed out correctly, not really been part of our traditional role. Canada, of course, famously known as peacekeepers. It's, But it is interesting because just in the last week or so, the tide of the war really does seem to have turned in favor of Ukraine. And I wonder if what Canada will really end up doing is the kind of thing it's always purportedly been very good at, which is negotiating uh, and negotiating an end to the war or pushing for some kind of a diplomatic solution. It could include the return of all occupied territories to Ukraine, or it could also include putting pressure via NATO on both parties, Russia and Ukraine, to bring a speedy end to the conflict. There was a really interesting uh, conversation that took place, uh, at least from some quarters. There was a call on Canada to prevent uh, Russians from visiting the country. That is something that the government had refused to do. And I have to say, in light of some of the developments around the conscriptions and the flights that are filling up and the people who are leaving en masse, that is probably a good decision. And I think that one, the government is likely to continue to stand by. I will echo Michelle in saying that um, 
like we should be accepting people from Russia who wish to flee, uh, Canada needs to continue to, uh, to the extent as much as possible, accept Ukrainian refugees. Obviously, there's always uh, possible avenues to make the resettlement process a little smoother. And so I hope that we will be able to do that. Uh, but I think we have seen a lot of support from Canada, both from the government and also in terms of civil society, in terms of trying to make Ukrainian refugees uh, as welcome as possible. I would be very interested to see, because I think I mentioned this whenever we last discussed Ukraine, that there is a well-established diaspora, of, uh, you know, a Ukrainian diaspora in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I would be very curious to know whether the changing tide of the war in that part of the world also results in changing demands from Ukrainians living right here at home, because that might be a more compelling reason for the government to change its course of action. Let's move to over say, to... if I can jump in for please, two seconds, please. too, is just on the Ukrainian connection note. And this is strictly speculation. There's no indication that she's been involved in this. But Jawida talked about Canada helping to play a role in negotiations. We happen to have a deputy prime minister in the form of Christopher Freeland, who is A, Ukrainian, and B, has mm-hmm. proven her medal as a negotiator during mm-hmm. the uh, new U.S.-Canada-Mexico trade deal. So yeah, just just putting that out no, there. You never, you, you never know. Right? It's, a, it's a valuable thought. It's a really valuable thought. We're going to do a deep dive into the United Nations in the next segment of the show. But I want to ask one UN related questions here. And let's not dwell on it too, too much. But Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, has asked for Russia's veto vote on the Security Council to be removed. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not going to happen. The Americans didn't lose theirs when they illegally invaded Iraq. The Chinese haven't lost theirs for like genocide and human rights abuses for like 70 years. Russia ain't going to lose their ain't going to lose their Security Council vote. But Joita, do you have a thought on that? Yeah, I agree with you. Not least because uh, a couple of things are happening. One, the UN Charter actually makes Russia a member of the Security Council. And two, in order to make any kind of a change to the structure of the UN, including removing the veto from one of the members of the Security Council or to change the composition of the Security Council itself, not only do you need a two-thirds majority of the General Assembly, but you also need get this all five members of the Security Council to agree. That's not likely to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and I, 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 but, but there are workarounds. I'll grant you that there are workarounds um, because, you know, some, uh, because it was, because at one point the, the United Nations did replace the nationalist government of China, the one that's based out of Taiwan, with uh, the government in Beijing. So they do find workarounds and international lawyers love to look for these loopholes. But in order to enforce any kind of a loophole or workaround, you're going to need a lot of political will from everybody in the room, basically everybody who's a UN member except Russia mm-hmm. and possibly China, basically saying we're going to ignore this rule. And again, it's not very plausible that that is going to happen. And I think Zelensky knows that too. I think he knows it's highly unlikely that Russia is going to have its veto taken away. I think he was trying to make a public statement about how overwhelmingly powerful Russia is and how the odds are stacked against them. The one last thing I'll say is that there's that really famous instance about the UN acting uh, in Korea and sending troops. So people might be saying, well, why isn't the UN getting more involved? Well, that was because... um, Russia actually decided, they would say unwisely, to boycott the uh, Security Council meeting. So I don't think that's going to happen either. So just to keep that in mind as well. Michelle, I think Joy delayed most of that out there. But any thoughts on Zelensky's uh, perpetual attempt to shift over to windows? Not much to add beyond what Joita said. Honestly, I, I totally agree with you. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, and I feel like Zelensky didn't really have much choice other than to make that kind of demand because it's the kind of thing that you ask for in a case like this. Uh, when you're faced with a, an, a power imbalance and an aggressor who, who holds 
an unusual degree of international sway under the circumstances here. Uh, worth noting that the Security Council uh, did try to vote to ask them to shut down the war in Ukraine, and wouldn't wouldn't you know, Russia objected to that. Yeah. So I think he it it makes sense and it's politically savvy of him to not only highlight the power imbalance but make those kinds of demands. I mean, it's kind of a negotiating basics, right? You you ask for more than you're yep. willing to accept. Yeah, so. number one rule in negotiation: make the big yep. ask, and then it's easier exactly. to find a solution or a compromise somewhere in the middle. Uh, Michelle, Joita mentioned the referendums, and we also heard the Prime Minister mention the referendum in that clip that I played off the top. I don't put much stake in these. Sorry, I keep throwing cold water on all these points. I don't take much stake in these because it's not exactly clear that Russia has free and fair elections in their own country. I don't imagine how free and fair this referendum, these referendums may be either. Pass the cold water pitcher. I'm with you completely. Uh, these are... Uh, these are referenda that are that are being widely dismissed before they've even really gotten underway by the West. They're they're widely expected to go Moscow's way. There's about four provinces that are taking part here, including some names that you've probably heard of, like Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, but yeah, I, I expect these to go much as expected and to be treated as such. And as Moscow would add, yet another sticking point to yeah, these it's, complicated discussions. <laughs> it's also it's also hard to say, like, hey, we're having this referendum about whether or not you want to be occupied by Russia, but those of you who don't want to be occupied by Russia probably fleed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, well, exactly. like the, yeah. you know, there's like there's it's, all like it's not even just is this election free and fair? Is this even like legitimate when half that population has been displaced or more than half that population has been displaced? Uh, Joita, I don't mean to throw uh, cold water on your own premise, on your own question, but any thoughts on the referendum? I was actually going to say hand that picture over unless, uh, you know, because I would love to, just, you know, dive sip with a bit of cold wow, water it's myself. Like a, it's, but, like, well, but, it's like a Tuesday but, at Cafe Campus <laughs> over here. We're just passing right? the yeah. picture around. Let's just turn this into a water fight. But I think... I think it's an interesting question because you're right. Uh, it has been roundly criticized as a farce uh, by most international uh, leaders in France. Macron saying he's not going to recognize the results as valid. Germany following suit. Uh, you heard Justin Trudeau right off the top. But I think it's really interesting to see why he might have made the claim. There's at least one expert based in Canada whose name, I'm sorry, I cannot recall, uh, who said that they basically need to have this referendum, th these referenda now or they're not going to be able to do so in 10 days because that's the extent to which the tide of the war has turned. Mm. I think there is a lot more going on here for the Kremlin. A couple of things come to mind. First, they're trying to consolidate um, their position. And I think these referendums serve as a prelude to annexation. So in the four provinces, Michelle mentioned them, um, there is a large Russian-speaking population and there has been an, a push to join Russia for a very long time. So Russia is trying to hold these referendums to show that, look, people in these provinces want to join Russia and they want to be a part of Russia. And so they're trying to do a couple of things here. One, they're trying to shore up support uh, for, you know, on the basis of, of sovereignty and self-determination. But they're also trying to perhaps shore up support at home because this war has gotten very unpopular in Russia. And I think they're trying to change the channel or, 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 or shift the discourse by saying, but you see, we're not invading re Ukraine. This is a fight for fellow Russians. This is a fight for Russian, um, on Russian soil. So I think there's a lot of things happening here. And 
there are no uh, international monitors present. So your point about these uh, these referendums being free and fair is well taken or not being free and fair. Rather, should be uh, there's a wide speculation that the results will be rigged in favor of the Kremlin. Um, but the one other thing I'll point out is that these referendums are also taking place in the context of a massive crackdown on civil liberties, mm. which we don't really have time to get into here. But I think that context is also very important to consider. There's always an appeal that any government can make or any institution can make or any advocacy organization can make about self-determination. So I, that point is definitely well taken, Joita, that certainly as they try to frame this, they say this is about giving the people of these provinces the opportunity to self-determine, which that could fall upon some sympathetic ears depending on where you live in the world. But it, but it, the, the framing, the framing is critical. I think the practicality uh, will certainly water that one out. Let's finish where Joita started in her opening remarks, which is nuclear war or nuclear weapons, which have loomed large over this, even since the Crimea invasion in 2014. And it's loomed large over the run-up into this, into the early days of this, and where we stand today. And it seems every couple of weeks, somebody, particularly Vladimir Putin, will muse about nuclear weapons. I don't put too, too much stock into those musings unless he legitimately is interested in ending the world. And I don't think he is. But Michelle, what do you make of the conversation once again being uh, of, of nuclear weapons once again sort of rising up in the discourse? Well, I I think it just is a, is a testament to the power of that threat that it keeps coming up. Right. You, you, you can't afford not to take it seriously, at least to some degree. Uh, I don't personally imagine Vladimir Putin's going to necessarily pull the trigger on stuff immediately, but I will say that early on in the war, I, I distinctly recall visiting with some relatives and some news alerts started to come out about a potential breach at a nuclear plant in Ukraine. This was, you know, the war at this point was three or four days old and we all got kind of spooked. Everything was put to bed. There have been subsequent alarms just like it in the days since that didn't provoke the same reaction, but it is a very real and grave threat, and Ukraine is at the center of it. So I, I think it's inevitable that these that, that subtext enters these conversations. And while I don't necessarily think the threat is imminent, I think it is potent, and I think it's always going to be part of the backdrop as any kind of negotiations take place after this. Joita, we finish where you started in regard to nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think the threat of nuclear weapons is always taken seriously. But I want to pick up on that word negotiations. I think that... Some experts have made the point that um, when you consider the degree of atmospheric contamination uh, associated with any kind of nuclear strike, given that Russia is so close to Ukraine, they're basically targeting themselves as much as they are targeting Ukraine. And I suspect that the Kremlin knows this. So many experts have actually called the bluff in this instance. They're not saying that we don't take nuclear threats uh, seriously, but they are saying that this might be a ploy for the Kremlin to get the West to put pressure on Ukraine to come to the negotiating table and make concessions. Mm. Well, we're we're started this news panel in the world of international politics. And coming up next, we'll explore a little bit more deeply what happened in New York this week as part of the UN General Assembly and consider exactly what role the UN is currently playing in international politics. This is the Now News Panel on AMI.
Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta. Let's address our next topic. The United Nations General Assembly met in New York this week. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez reflected on the impact of deep political divisions. Our world is in peril and paralyzed. Geopolitical divides are undermining the work of the Security Council, undermining international law, undermining trust and people's faith in democratic institutions, undermining all forms of international cooperation. We cannot go on like this. It wasn't all negativity. Gutierrez did point out how even Russia and Ukraine were able to cooperate on food exports. Ukraine and the Russian Federation, with the support of Turkey, came together to make it happen, despite the enormous complexities, the naysayers, and even the hell of war. Some might call it a miracle on the sea. In truth, it is multilateral diplomacy in action. Canada's ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray, says Canada will rise to the current challenges. Do we feel the pressure? Hey, yeah, of course. But guess what? I mean, we're used to pressure. We know how to respond to it, and we will be responding to it. But we have always contributed our share and our fair share to every single appeal that's been made by the UN. Michelle, this is a very interesting topic. Where do you think we should go with this? It is a big one, admittedly, probably more than we have the scope or time for today. But I was kind of struck hearing all of this through the UN General Assembly, which got underway. And it's set to continue. It's worth noting that Vladimir Putin is expected to address the assembly tomorrow. So that'll be interesting. Um, but hearing the kind of... of, of almost apocalyptic talk from Antonio Guterres. It was very striking to me. We're not accustomed to hearing said out loud the kind of things that we often seem to think in our heads. I think a lot of people who might consume a lot of negative news and think, what is going on with the world? Why does it feel so broken? Out comes the Secretary General saying, yes, the world is in great great global dysfunction, I believe was the world, the, the phrase that he used, among others that are equally strong and potent. To try and describe the situation we're in, he outlined a whole host of catastrophes, not just the war in Ukraine, although that has really dominated talks. He definitely addressed the climate crisis. He said our world is burning. He talked about the rise of extremism. He talked about the affordability crisis. He talked about food shortages. There really is a wild amount going on. And when I hear the Secretary General of the organization that, at least in theory, is supposed to play a role in stopping many, if not most, of these crises, I have to ask myself, huh, okay, are things going exactly as they ought to with the UN? Has its role evolved to keep pace with the times? Is it a role that even could accomplish what it wanted to, even under the best of circumstances, under which we're not currently operating? Um, these are just the basic questions. And from there, obviously, there are so many different directions one could go. So I think it is a, a pretty complex issue wrapped up in a fairly simple question. Juita, let's start with Antonio Gutierrez's assessment of the world. I have to say that probably falls in line with how I feel about the world somewhere around my second bottle of wine. <laughs> what do you make of it? Before I get to that, do you mind if you if I if do you mind indulging me with a bit of a language related quibble? Sure. Uh, and the quibble is this: the phrase that he heard that we heard and that he used was "the world is in peril and paralyzed." Why does disability have to be a metaphor for everything going wrong? That that was my quibble. Okay, moving right along. I actually agree with the general's principle and the, st the sentiment behind what he's saying, and I think he's given voice to a lot of frustration that uh, people are feeling and the deep sense of 
uh, feeling like the world, Michelle put it really beautifully, that the world is burning. And he was very good in articulating not just where there was hope, but I think doing a very good job of laying out that there are challenges on every front, political, diplomatic, economic, environmental. And I think it was discouraging in the sense that you then flounder when you hear something like this and you say, well, where do we go from here? Where are the solutions at? And yet, in the very act of naming the problems facing the world today, in front of an audience comprised of world leaders, um, there was something very powerful that happened. Joanna, did we did we did we lose you there, or was or was that was that your? That, that was it. <laughs> okay, I was I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't sure, and I hope you don't think that we're turning a blind eye or that your quibble is falling on deaf ears. Ooh, um, turning a blind eye or turning a deaf. <laughs> um, uh, let's talk about the role the UN plays in the world. We got into it last segment in regards to the fact that it's maybe not as strong as a geopolitical police officer as some folks hoped it would be due to the vetoes that exist in the Security Council, but it still plays a really important part in world in, in the operation of the world. I'm thinking specifically about the floods in Pakistan right now. UNICEF is on the ground right away. That's an organization that goes out there and does that. The UN does, in terms of their human rights work, does a lot of the actual data collection that we need to understand global policy around human rights issues. So to me, Michelle, the UN still plays a critical role in the world. It's just not as a geopolitical police officer. This is it, right? You, I don't think it's possible to talk or, or, or responsible to talk about the UN as a big tent in, in such broad strokes because there are so many areas in which it is involved. And which it, which it does some really good work. You you talked about a couple right there. I'd, I'd argue that UNESCO does some valuable work in helping uh, with, with a number of, of aspects. Uh, the food delivery project is one that the UN was help was instrumental in helping to broker. Uh, we talked about the 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 ship with the bearing a UN flag carrying grain out of Ukraine. Uh, that came about largely through a UN brokerage, even if it had the cooperation of other powers, as Guterres said off the top. So yeah, it is very actively involved in some some critical work but i think that a there's a poor understanding of exactly what the un does and what its various agencies and arms do and it is admittedly a fairly complex organization even for friends of mine who have worked within it um but more than that i think it is also dealing with some issues that are beyond its scope i'm thinking of this war specifically uh, obviously this is not going to be the body that helps to resolve it and also on climate change. A lot of the COP conferences have been UN-led, and we've all seen what happens with a lot of these. They, they lead to some commitments sometimes that don't necessarily get followed. Uh, there are endless talks that don't necessarily feel like they're leading somewhere as, as concrete. Um, at the same time, the UN is one of the ones that presents data to help really unequivocally sound the alarm on this crisis. So it's, it, I find it difficult to, to parse the UN because of its sheer complexity. But there's no question that it does provide some form of value in certain areas, just not necessarily where people might expect them to or want them to. Joy, I, I know you addressed it a little bit in your in your opening remarks, but what do you make of some of those arms of the UN that continue to offer it the validity that mm -hmm. that, that has it deserved the attention that it gets on the world stage? 
Yeah, I mean, there are many agencies and high commissions and other bodies um, affiliated with and uh, under the the umbrella of the UN that does remarkably good work, whether it's the World Health Organization on COVID or uh, the human rights work done by the UNHCR or, um, you know, yes, UNESCO has done some good work, although I have to point out they've been, they've come under some fire for uh, corruption and squabbling. But all that said, let's go back back and crack open our history books. Um, Because if you recall, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the reason the UN was established in the first place was to try and prevent further conflict. And I think we can agree that that hasn't really happened. And I think the reason it hasn't really happened, and I alluded to this earlier, is because of the veto that is granted to the five members of the Security Council. So that means they can basically kibosh any sort of action uh, that the UN may want to take. But also because throughout its history, what we've seen is that the five members of the Security Council, i.e. the major superfires, have themselves been embroiled in conflict. So they can never agree or agree not to disagree. And and so we've, we've seen that in that sense, the UN has been extremely ineffective. But I will go back and say, again, if we delve into history, if you consider the precursor or the predecessor to the United Nations, that being the League of Nations, one of the reasons historians said that the League failed was because the U.S. was absent. So at least the U.S. is a part of the U.N. And then I suppose you could say that one of the other reasons that the League of Nations failed was because major combatants were absent. So after the First World War, they deliberately excluded Germany, then they brought Germany in, and then they kicked Germany out again. And I guess the argument could be made that once Germany was excluded from the League of Nations, what little oversight there was basically Mm -hmm. disappeared into the ether and Germany was given a free hand and we get the rise of Nazism and the Second World War. So, yes, they've been pretty ineffective by, you know, by virtue of the Security Council structure that I think I I spoke in the previous segment about how difficult that is to change. They've been pretty ineffective about curtailing the, if you'll allow me a bit of a, a colloquial phrase, the bad behavior of Russia or, um, you know, the United States or other superpowers. But then the question begs to be asked, um, would the situation have been much worse if Russia or the United States or Great Britain or what have you hadn't actually belonged to the United Nations and there was no oversight or accountability whatsoever? Uh, the I'm last, hmm? Sorry. Go ahead. I'll, I'll go after it. Well, the, the, the last thing I wanted to point out, and this is kind of a weird one that takes a little bit of uh, – that, that it took – at least I struggle to wrap my brain around this, is that at least in order to be a, an effective peacekeeper – the UN does, may actually need to have a military force of its own, which it doesn't have. Um, and that does, and, and not only would the UN need to have a military force of its own, but that military force would have to be overwhelmingly stronger than any individual country's military force. Oh. And I don't <laughs> yeah. see that yeah, happening. Good luck with that. So really, it doesn't, it, it, the UN has been ineffective in curtailing a strong a superpower with strong military capacity where the UN has been successful is in routing countries that are smaller and weaker. And again, if you'll allow me to just say this in plain terms, disliked by everybody on the international stage. Michelle, last word goes to you on this. Well, I, I, I think there's also some value in, in providing the setting for a lot of countries to to talk and set up some sort of subgroups, regional subgroups that have more value than we hear about, but that do a lot of important work closer to home. 
But where I really want to end with this is sort of cycling back to something else Guterresh said that we didn't talk about as much. He did lay out all the ways in which we're embroiled in doom and gloom, but he did also say at the end that the only path out of it is through global discussion and the kind of things that the UN does on the, on the regular. Um, and I'm reminded when I hear things like that about the, the old adage that perhaps some of you have heard about democracy in that it's a terrible system, except that it's better than all the others. <laughs> and that's what comes to mind when I hear this kind of talk about the UN. It, it's hard to imagine how global dialogue, almost ad nauseum, someone might argue, will help solve these problems. But I, for one, can't think of a much better way out. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. Guys, we have to move on. Coming up next, we discuss a variety of issues related to affordability and financial stress on Canadians. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown alongside Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We've got one more topic to discuss. Let's talk about affordability and financial stress. You never hear about those stories in the media. There have been quite a few stories that fit into this topic that broke over the week. Let's start with inflation or I suppose you could actually call it deflation. Stats Canada released August's inflation numbers month over month. Prices went down by 0.6%. However, year over year, prices were still up significantly at 7%. Desjardins Senior Director of Canadian Economics, Randall Bartlett, says there are some positive indicators. You know, when you look, when you unpack it, whether it's, you know, month over month, seasonally adjusted, not seasonally adjusted, year over year growth, we are seeing broad, a broad-based deceleration in inflation, and um, you know that that's uh, certainly you know as positive a development as I think you can uh, can have on the inflation front. On the federal level, the federal government's rolled out more of its affordability plan. The legislation tabled would double the GST credit for six months, provide a one-time housing support payment for low-income renters, and create the Canada Dental Benefit for children under 12 who do not have access to dental insurance. Associate Minister of Finance Randy Boissonneau says these measures are aimed at the most vulnerable Canadians. The three measures in the bills we introduced today represent new money for them this year at the right time. This is what an economy that works for all Canadians looks like. This is the targeted support Canadians have been asking for. We listened and we made sure it happened. Oh, I have more for you, by the way, because Stats Canada also released some census data related to housing. Homeownership rates fell between 2011 and 2021 from 69%, nice, to 66.5%. There was one more thread to this data that I want to share just because I'm I'm intentionally trying to confuse you. Eric Olson, an assistant director at Stats Canada's Centre for Income and Socioeconomic Wellbeing, says despite ownership rates decreasing, affordability actually improved in the last five years. And thus, when household incomes grow faster than shelter costs, as they did up to the 2021 census, this creates conditions for improved housing affordability. So the rate of unaffordable housing, or the proportion of households that spent more than 30% of their income on shelter costs, fell from 24.1% in 2016 to 20.9% in 2021. And finally, a new study has found the financial well-being of working Canadians has declined in the past year. John Kennedy takes a closer look at those findings. 
The study, which combines the National Payroll Institute's annual survey with analysis by the Financial Wellness Lab of Canada, found the number of people living paycheck to paycheck increased by 26% in 2022 compared to last year. The analysis included a look at the financial clusters Canadians could fall into, comfortable coping or stressed, and showed the gap has widened between those coping and stressed. While those with lower household incomes were likely to be stressed, 41% in the stressed category reported an annual household income in excess of $100,000. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Okay, so is your head spinning enough yet? I just threw a ton of numbers at you to digest there. We've only got about four minutes and 30 seconds on the clock here to have this conversation. So I want to boil this down to the crux of one singular question. Michelle, how hard is it to start telling stories in the media about the economy right now? <laughs> I think you just put on a nice little clinic on how, on the, on how complex it is. And you did it well. So there's the clinic on that front too. But it, it is very complicated to do this because, frankly, business and economic stories intersect with so many other aspects of society. I think a lot of people come into journalism even with a with a preconceived notion that business is its own self-contained department and its own its own thing and you're you're a business writer not an other kind of news writer and, and increasingly I think that notion is being challenged. The very fact that we have a reporter embedded in our parliamentary bureau with a very strong business background I think tells you pretty much all you need to know about some of that. Um, it, it is complex and it is important because numbers more than any other piece of information that we process as journalists require context and that's where I think it's really important to be able to provide that on a number of fronts and not sometimes take it out of the business context and apply it elsewhere you know apply it to uh, more social questions how is it affecting marginalized groups just to name a very very few but there's so many ways to do this and it's important to have those skills Mm -hmm. yeah the complexity to me lays in the fact that we can offer up a lot of macroeconomic broad-based data but some of the micro data says people are really suffering and having a tough time and then you get some of that stats can data which is almost pushing back the other way so juita i'm going to frame the same question to you is it getting really complex to talk about the economy in a meaningful way Yeah, Dave, we live in complex times, as was pointed out in a previous segment. So yes, it is now more than ever challenging to tell economic stories. But I will contend that it has always been challenging because there is very little economic literacy. And I will go so far as to say there's very little economic literacy amongst journalists in general. Maybe you've got a few specialists uh, in journalism who have a background in economics or business and maybe they have a better grasp of it. But for a lot of us, like when I do chase producing, I'm basically giving myself a crash course on economic terms when I'm writing or producing a story. And then it, it, it puts up all these interesting questions about the kinds of guests we bring on. Typically with an economic story, I'll go to an economist who then predictably speaks economies. And that isn't really something that resonates with all <laughs> audiences <laughs> and that doesn't really resonate with audiences because the one way to kill a radio story I had a senior producer t- tell me once is to like cram it full of numbers so but then how do you not tell the story through the numbers is it sufficient to tell a story that just talks about people's lived experiences and their impacts without bringing in the numbers what does responsible journalism look like mm. in that situation and the other part about economics is if something is good for one set of people, it's probably bad for another set of people. And bringing in that level of complexity uh, can be very daunting in an article with a word limit or in a radio segment that runs five to six minutes. Yeah, so. welcome welcome to capitalism where there are winners <laughs> and losers on either side of it. Juita, you mentioned economic literacy. I do want to make mention that the mighty AMI-audio podcast network does have a new podcast launching today called Eyes on Your Money, which is all about offering a lot of that economic uh, economic knowledge from a real baseline 
point of view for the first 10 episodes, and they're going to try to build from there. So it's something that we're actually trying to do inside the AMI family right now is build some of that economic and financial literacy right from the ground up in a super accessible way. So really, really cool idea that that's going to be launching today. You can find that on your favorite podcasting platform. Michelle, I'm going to say goodbye to you. We'll talk to you on Monday morning as part of the weekend news recap. So all the best to you. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Joita, just before I fully say goodbye to you, tell me, we previewed it yesterday on the show, but give me a little bit of insight on the Pulse episode that dropped yesterday. Oh, the one that dropped yesterday with Andrea Callanan. Oh, she is a genius. Um, her, 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 her journal article in the Canadian uh, Journal of Disability Studies basically says, think about the disability memoir as an accessibility device or an assistive device that people with disabilities provide to able-bodied people. Oh, That's so her interesting. thesis. It's so I was interesting. Blo- I was blown away by it, Dave. I mean, I, I asked her during the interview, I said, how do you come up with these things? And one of the things that she said that really resonated with me, she said, it's because of my disability. It's because, you know, my brain is wired differently from the norm. So I see patterns where other people might miss them. And so it just goes to show you that, you know, we've talked about things like blindness gain on the pulse before, but there are gains and uh, really powerful insights that come from your embodied experience of living with a disability. Joita, that episode made its debut yesterday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time, but folks can find it on demand on their favorite podcasting platform. And of course, they can also check out the pulse on our YouTube page as well, which is super, super neat. Joita, best of luck filming your next episode today. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks very much. That's Joita Gupta, host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, I have the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, September the 23rd, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Michael McNeely will chat about the importance of diverse representation in Disney's remake of The Little Mermaid. And Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access will run through this year's finalists for the Writers' Trust of Canada shortlist. So many literary awards. They, they, need to get on, they need to get on the same page, if you will. And just have, like, one thing. Pulitzers. That's it. Maybe have two. You know, for years we had the Oscars and the Golden Globes, or the Emmys and the Golden Globes. Yeah, we're allowed two now. But every time we talk to Karen McKay, it's like, this short list, that short list, this long list, that long list. It's too many books. Too many shows. Can't read them all. And that's why we appreciate that you spend some time with us. Let's begin the hour with the regional news update. British Columbia's seniors advocate says almost half of seniors in the province are living on annual incomes that amount to less than minimum wage. Isabel McKenzie says BC ranks last in Canada, providing key financial supports that include monthly income supplements. The 2019 median income for BC seniors was $30,750. What that means is that half of British Columbia seniors are living on less than $30,750 a year, and that is less than minimum wage. 
Among McKenzie's 10 recommendations is a call for extended health benefits for seniors, include coverage for mobility aids, eyeglasses, and hearing aids. Staying in British Columbia, the city of Merritt, BC, is launching a four-day workweek pilot program in hopes of attracting, recruiting, and retaining workers. The program will see City Hall closed on Mondays with operational hours extended by an extra one hour and 45 minutes from Tuesday through Friday. The city's chief administrative officer, Sean Smith, says he hopes this compressed week will allow the city to compete with other jurisdictions. We're excited to give it a try and hopefully that does yield the benefits we're anticipating for our employees and we're hoping that the public really enjoys it as well and if not learn from it and and pivot back that's the beauty of the pilot. Smith says he expects the pilot will launch this fall. Over to the prairies. Something a little bit more fun here for a moment before we get back to the serious. The eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains may seem an unlikely spot for a hot air balloon festival, but the town of High River, Alberta, is celebrating the event for the 10th straight year. Event director and High River town councillor Jamie Kinghorn explains why the festival started in the first place. It started in 2013 as a result of, or partly because of the flood that happened. We wanted to do something for the community. I I lived in the community. I still live in the community. And I've been to a number of balloon events and felt that this might help lift some of the spirits of the folks in town to get that lift of spirits. There are 23 hot air balloons registered from all over the world. Over to Ontario, back to the series. Ontario's education workers represented by the Canadian Union of Public Employees will begin voting on the possibility of a strike today. The province's five major major education unions are all in the midst of bargaining new contracts. Laura Walton, the president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Union, says there there has been a lack of progress at the bargaining table. The Central Committee, the OSBCU Bargaining Committee, has asked uh, for a positive strike vote. Um, in relation to, I mean, the, the strike vote had already been called, but definitely yesterday really firmed up why that strike vote was really necessary. The government has offered raises of 2% a year for workers making less than $40,000 and 1.25% for all other workers, while CUPE is looking for annual increases of 11.7%. And then back to Atlantic Canada. We shared some of this sound and some of this news with you in the first hour of the show, but it's an important story and it bears repeating. Environment Canada predicts Hurricane Fiona will reach Nova Scotia waters by late tonight before passing through the province's eastern mainland, Cape Britain, Breton, and Prince Edward Island on Saturday. Forecasters expect Fiona to move up to Quebec's lower north shore and southeastern Labrador early Sunday. John Lord, the minister responsible for Nova Scotia's emergency management office, is urging people to brace for the storm. That includes securing outdoor items and trimming or removing damaged trees or limbs, having a 72-hour emergency kit ready, charging cell phones and devices, and ensuring you have a safe and secure place to stay. Stay home from the storm and keep away from areas in your home that could be hit with flying debris like doors and windows. And let's once again play some sound from Halifax Mayor Mike Savage. If you live near the coast, you must be prepared to leave on short notice and pay close attention to possible evacuation orders. Throughout our entire Halifax region, you should be prepared for downed trees, extended power outages and local flood conditions. I want to remind you, of course, uh, our daily poll, not to be crass, also relates to emergency preparedness. So at Accessible Media on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, we're asking you, do you keep an emergency supplies kit in your home? Yes or no? And if you do want to get involved in the comments section or reply to that, please do and tell us what it is you keep in the kit. Let's bring in Brock Richardson. 
He's the host of the Neutral Zone, and he's here for a sports chat. So, Brock, let's start with some news out of the NBA world. We're finding more scandal, this time involving Boston Celtics coach Emi Adoka. Yes, so he will be suspended for the entire 2022-2023 season for his role in a consensual relationship with a female staff member, as per Adrian Wojnarowski, who broke it first. Uh, For me, Dave... I sort of find it interesting that he's facing this kind of suspension, given that the direct quote was that this is a consensual relationship. However, as I started to think about it, I thought to myself, well, it could possibly because they just don't want this sort of activity happening between uh, employees at a workplace uh, such as this one, conflict of interest plays a part in all this. So very interesting to see that there will be a suspension laid. And yesterday when I put the story, it said he might be. And then later on, it came out that he will be. So it is confirmed that he will be missing the entire season this coming year. It's one of the things that we've learned, regardless of the relationship being consensual, the power dynamic that exists between a head coach and a staffer on the team is something you just can't have from a human resources perspective or an ethical perspective. It's just not good. And it's something that in this case, it wasn't even the league who stepped in. It was the team themselves that stepped in and said, no, can't have that. That's against our policies. We're not going to do this. And that seems like the right choice. And it's not even clear whether or not this is going to end at just a one year suspension, but that is the framing point and the starting point point for this conversation and it just brings it just brings to the point that like do read your contracts and your policies because i'm sure that when he signed this these types of things were in there i'm sure that he knew about them and just understand that those policies do have to be held up when you do cross the boundaries it's not that we're just putting these policies on nice paper and saying ah sure go ahead put put your your signature on this and we're not going to bother. They're put there for a reason, so do read it when you have the luxury of getting a contract of any kind. I think it's important. Yeah, we're just a couple of dudes talking about this too. Like this is obviously coming from our male perspective, but one of the things we've learned since Me Too emerged in 2017 is the power dynamic and grooming is a big, big problem, and it's something that needs to be understood more deeply. Brock, let's move on to baseball. I mean, that was serious. Baseball is much, much less serious, but it is fun, and sports are supposed to be fun. So let's move on to the Toronto Blue Jays and the Tampa Bay Rays. <sighs> Toronto dropping the opening game, the opening game of the series last night. Yes, they did. They were let down by Jose Barrios uh, yet again. And, I, and I'm not putting all of the blame on Jose Barrios, but the thing that stuck out to me was that uh, every time the Blue Jays would seem to get off to a lead or tie the game or mm-hmm. take the lead again. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, Jose Barrios would come back out and give it all back <laughs> plus a little bit. <laughs> yeah. and no, it just, bro, it just... you're, you're absolutely right. They take a one nothing lead at the top of the first. Oh, we're giving up three runs in the bottom of the first. Hey, we tied the game in the top of the third. No, we're giving up some runs in the bottom of the fourth. It's got to be so deflating. Yeah, and it's hard. Like, it really is hard. As a, as a team member to, to get up and like, we just did our work. How come you can't hold up your end of the bargain? And I, I do have some concerns about tonight. I understand what they're doing by moving guys around and, and giving guys extra days rest. I totally appreciate that. But this is a series now you've dropped 
the game, uh, the opening game, where in my mind, at the least, you need to get a split. You need to stay ahead of Tampa Bay uh, by two games. And if they do get a two and two split, therefore, they would stay two games ahead. Uh, Mitch White as an opener, sometimes good, sometimes not. I understand, again, the extra rest is of importance, especially as you're going down the stretch. And with all the innings Alec Manoa has pitched, I do totally understand the extra day rest, and that's fine. But I do have concerns given that you've dropped the first game of this very, very important series against the Tampa Bay Rays, given that they are a team you're ahead of right now. And you need to stay ahead of this team. Oh, you just alluded to something that I wasn't aware of. I didn't realize that the Toronto Blue Jays were giving the Tampa Bay Rays a taste of their own medicine by not sending an actual starter to the mounds tonight. (laughs) Right? This was so designed by the Tampa Bay Rays, you know, starting an opener. And everyone kind of scoffed at it and went, what the heck are they doing? And now everyone in the league is doing this we're going to start an opener and don't even get me started. I know we don't have time. I don't get openers. I why like, why are we doing this? If the next guy's going <laughs> to, going to pitch four or five innings, I digress. Anyway, moving on. This well, series is important. It's this very week. important. It's like, that's an understatement. It's a very important series for the blue Jays who seem pretty comfortably in a playoff spot, but now we're playing for home games. Yeah. hundred percent. And that home game is more important than, A lot of people think, remember that all games will be played at the home ballpark for the opening round. And that's going to be proven to be very, very um, advantageous. I look at, you know, some would say, oh, well, the easier opponent is in the third spot. Yeah, I think I think you want to get home field advantage first and foremost in a three game series. And you want your fans behind you as much as possible yeah i don't want to mess around with the cleveland guardians in the first round i'll I'll pass they've been playing really well since about june 1st the guardians have been one of the more impressive teams and they just absolutely destroyed the white Sox this week ended the white Sox hopes of making the playoffs those guardians are streaking at the right time they're young they're good they're tough let's uh focus on playing seattle or tampa ideally seattle uh brock all week you've been saying dave i need to talk about international coaches week i need to talk about international coaches week and i keep saying brock we'll do it tomorrow brock we'll do it tomorrow brock we'll do it tomorrow brock tomorrow has finally come you wanted to take sure. note and talk about the significant role that coaches play in the lives of young athletes and pro athletes and competitive athletes alike so this week has been a very special week for me uh, personally i have had five coaches all through my career each one of them has had a direct impact uh, on my life and my and my beginnings of bocce and i can remember my first nationals coach and i got changed classifications and i was so upset and she said man you're gonna make the national team and i was just like yeah but i liked being in the category i was in and then i went and won a bronze medal and the rest was history in the new category so i mean each coach has their impact on you my father was my personal coach for a long long time and uh, I'm proud to say that uh, my father uh, took in this week's episode of The Neutral Zone, which we delve into uh, Coaches Week and left a very nice message about, you know, being proud of me and all the things that he's been able to teach me through and through sports. And he did acknowledge in that message that I was one of the toughest athletes to uh, coach. And that's because of our close relationship. Mm-hmm. But I learned so much from him. And uh, one of the biggest takeaways that I got from our head coach for the national team 
I was 17 years old. We were playing an international event in BC Place, uh, which was a huge venue. And I went into the venue and we're, we're, we're standing in there waiting for the opening ceremonies. And I remember my coach looked at me at 17 and he said, take it all in. Take it all in because you just never know what's going to happen if you're going to come back, whatever the case may be. And that is something I've taken beyond my life and understanding that everything that you get to do, take it all in. Believe in what you're doing. And that's been proven for me, you know, beyond the sport. It's been proven in my career. Be be confident in what I'm doing. So coaches have an impact that go far beyond sports, Dave. And I just think that they deserve the kudos because they spend a lot of time that we don't even see them. And it's important to give them kudos that they deserve. It's one of the greatest things someone can do with their time and with their life is to coach, whether it be competitively or as a volunteer. I, I was really lucky in my life to coach kids hockey for a couple of years, uh, five, six, seven year olds and nine, 10 and 11 year olds. And I was a terrible coach. I probably taught them nothing about hockey, but I taught them about having fun and chased them around for a couple hours a day. It was a pleasure for me. And I really hope they enjoyed it too. And being a coach is just an incredible, incredible way to give back. Hey, Brock, thank you for all of your work this week. Enjoy a busy weekend in sports, and we'll catch up with you on Monday. We will indeed. Have a good weekend. That's Brock Richardson. He's the host of The Neutral Zone. You can find that podcast both on YouTube, on AMI Audio, on AMI's YouTube page, and also on your favorite podcasting platform. Coming up after the break, not after the break, coming up right now is Alex Smythe at the AMI Weather Desk. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's mainly cloudy with rain beginning this afternoon and the hurricane warning is in effect due to the incoming Hurricane Fiona and 21 is the high. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's raining with more expected throughout the day and into the evening and the hurricane warning is in effect there as well and it's a high of 14. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain this morning and a tropical storm warning is in effect due to Hurricane Fiona and it's 13 is the high. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds and clearing this afternoon and a high of 13. In Toronto, Ontario, it's sunny and a high of 16. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, clouds are clearing this morning and 18 is the high. In Brandon, Manitoba, there's showers today with 14 as the high. Regina, Saskatchewan. It's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers this afternoon and a high of 16. In Lethbridge, Alberta, clouds are clearing this morning with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers an hour and 20 is the high. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud later and 20 is the high there. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, it's cloudy with a chance of showers this morning and early afternoon and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with a high of 12. In Kelowna, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds with increasing cloud cover as the day goes on and 21 is the high. And finally, in Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of showers and 16 is the high. That was your AMI National Weather Report. From Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Michael McNeely will discuss the importance of diverse representation in Disney's remake of The Little Mermaid. But first, Windows 11 is getting an update. Sherry Preston has details in Tech Trends. 
Engadget's Devendra Hardawar says the latest version of Windows 11 comes with some accessibility improvements, including system-wide live captions. This will basically create subtitles uh, at the top of their screens for video chats and just about anything. And that's super useful. That is just an AI-driven text uh, creation. But, he says, most of the changes happen under the hood. So really, it's an update about getting more updates. Microsoft says their goal is to make future updates easier. Microsoft is making it so that future Windows updates, like the stuff you'll be getting monthly or even, you know, more quickly than that, will be smaller and will install more quickly. To see if your computer is eligible, head to the settings page. Just like any update, you have to go to the Windows update section in your settings. If you just, like, hit the start menu, you start typing Windows Update, you'll see it there. And just refresh and see if it's available for your computer. With Tech Trends, I'm Sherry Preston, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. You know Disney. They love remaking some of their old films into live action. So, The Little Mermaid. It's going to be swimming its way towards theater soon, but it's garnering some attention online over some backlash regarding casting. Here to discuss some of the issues surrounding the film is Michael McNeely in Kingston, Ontario. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm well. Always interested in talking about issues like this. The trailer for The Little Mermaid dropped about a month ago. Bring me up to speed on the backlash. Well, we don't want to spend too much time on the backlash. Otherwise, we end up giving more more credence to the racists than we should. But essentially what happened was when people discovered that Holly Bailey was cast as Ariel, um, the color of her skin became an important, overriding issue to many people that should not be commented on the internet and shouldn't really keep their opinions to themselves. But alas, suffice it to say, these tools managed to wound everyone's day on Twitter by more or less whitewashing the trailer itself using CGI, um, replacing Holly's face with the white face and getting themselves banned off Twitter. So yesterday, when I visited when I visited Holly's page and when I visited the profile or the the hashtag of the movie itself, I was happy to see that there were less racist comments around. So it does seem like things are a bit cleaner now, but it's unfortunate that someone like Holly Holly was exposed to that. There certainly was a flip side here, where a lot of people did come forward to voice their support for Haley Bailey as a result of this backlash. What is the role of consumers to step up in these moments when controversy starts to swirl? So you're asking about what we can do if the controversy starts to happen? Yeah. Ultimately, we need to keep our nose to the grindstone. We need to focus on what is important. We need to not give these tools the satisfaction of responding to their bullying tactics. I know it's hard. I know it's 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 hard not to have the last word on the internet, but nobody really has the last word on the internet, except Holly. I think she deserves the last word personally. She seems to be taking it in stride, um, and 
you know, it's it's only going to be maybe 20 or 30 years later that we realize the sacrifices that this young woman has made at this point in time in her career and taking a big step forward for representation. We won't, we won't recognize those sacrifices yet. Um, so I think, I think to answer your question, I think it's probably good just to have a good meme that responds to the racist backlash and then just move on with your life because these people have too much free time on their hands. You mentioned representation there, and that's something that we talk about a lot on this show, the importance of representation. What is the significance of Halle Bailey's representation of Ariel, the Little Mermaid? What precedent does that set? Well, let's first start by analyzing the story of the Little Mermaid. Um, as you know, it's a story about finding belonging, finding family, finding um, a recognition to be yourself and accepting that. So I can't think of a better way than casting Holly to, to address those concerns in the storyline because her rule of Ariel is different than what we're expecting, but the measures of acceptance is the same. And the reason why Holly's presence as Ariel is different than what we're expecting is only because we have been exposed to a very long history of white actors and actresses playing rules that were really meant to be played by other people. And so this is just this is just a point in time in history where things have to change and things have had to change for a very long time. I think I think what we're seeing here today is just an opportunity for many people to recognize themselves on the silver screen and for many, many people to say, well, that could be me someday. Of course, we're not saying that everyone is going to go out there and be a mermaid, but we're going to say that people could be the heroes and heroines of their own stories and that they, they can have happy endings like the characters on the screen. Let's go back to the social media side of this. I once read an amazing post on social media that said, quote, tweet your friends and screen grab your enemies, which might lead me into my thought on this about what to do with trolls on social media, which is largely ignore them and don't amplify their message. What do you think? Well, I mean, that's kind of thing that we've been talking about this entire month is whether or not we should be giving platforms to people that don't deserve them. And that's why I wanted to be careful with this segment. So I would like to give a platform to Lynn Madwell Miranda, who I have been told has helped make four new songs for this movie. And I think anybody who loves Lynn Madwell Miranda, I mean, who doesn't, except of course those tools in the first place, but enough about them. Um, this, this is an amazing, amazing time because we're going to get four new songs from the creator of Hamilton. And not only that, then Miranda loves The Little Mermaid to such an extent that he's named his son Sebastian. Okay, come on. Dave, are you going to name any of your kids? If you have kids, are you going to name them after any movie characters? 
I'm going to go with unlikely to name my kids after movie characters. Maybe more likely to name my kids after musicians. Okay, so I look forward to meeting your kid, Led Zeppelin, and your other kid, you two. Um, <laughs> but yes, so we have Lynn Mandel. Miranda, we have Harley Bailey. We also have, get this, Melissa McCarthy as Ursula. Come Ooh, on. I like that. I, I want to see her spinning, just like that Ursula did in the original. She's floating and spinning. Okay, I don't know why that will make me happy. But we also have more more actors of color. We have Javier Bardem, believe it or not, as Sam Twisted. And I think the, the names just keep going on and on. So the question here is, is this movie going to be good? I I am just personally a little bit tired of this remake wagon. But it's important that I... I can have an opinion that doesn't necessarily infringe upon Holly Bailey's ability to act in this film. I know that she can act, I know that she can sing, and that she deserves to have a woo. I'm just tired of seeing the same story repeated over and over and over again. Yeah. But here we are, here's another one that Omar made. And you know what? To some extent, I'm kind of a hypocrite because I could watch Hamlet 25 times. And I'm fine if there's another Hamlet movie. So I just have to remember that some people may be looking at The Little Mermaid as a work of Shakespearean genius. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree with you, Michael, but I'm also a little tired of the live-action remakes, especially because pretty much in every case, the live-action Disney remake has been worse than the original. Aladdin was worse than the original. Lion King was worse than the original. Beauty and the Beast was worse than the original. So to a certain degree, I'm tired of this because the movies haven't been as good. It has nothing to do with casting or inclusion or anything like that. It's just the movies aren't as good. They're not as whimsical. They're not as fun. Michael, any final thoughts before you swim away? Like, there's a story here. There's a story. There's a story about somebody who is trapped. There's a story that Hans Christian Andersen recognized when he when he was writing letters to his his lover that didn't love him back. There's a story that he wrote. It's called The Little Mermaid. He wrote a story about a mermaid that would die if she spent time in land. I'm saying there's a story there. Do that. But don't just repeat yourself a thousand times. Tell me a different story. Tell me a story about Ariel when she's um, when she's traveling the world, when she's learning about cars, when she's learning about oil spills, where she's becoming an environmental activist. Russian meets Erin Brockovich. Okay, tell me that story. Don't come up with another thing like this again, because I saw it back, you know, in 1993. And also, I can't leave you without telling you this, but in one episode of The Little Mermaid animated series, there was an Afro-Latino mermaid. Her name was Gabriella, and she was deaf. Okay? She used sign language, and guess what her interpreter was? I I have no idea. Her interpreter was Ollie the octopus. Okay, that's something I'd be interested in seeing. I want to see how an octopus does ASL. Yeah, okay, I'm in. Consider both those ideas green light. I like them, Michael. Michael, have a great weekend. Thank you for this. 
Dave and you know what we'll have this discussion again when it comes out in March 2022 or 2023. It's time is a flat circle. I understand. That's Michael McNeely chatting about Disney's live action adaptation of The Little Mermaid, which, as Michael points out, comes out in spring of 2023. Mark your calendars and uh, mark me for having other plans the weekend that comes out. Coming up after the break, we'll chat with Nazreen and Alex, see what's cracking. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. A reminder that you can always reach out to the show. No matter what you hear, whether you like it or you don't like it, we want to hear your feedback. So send us emails, feedback at AMI.ca, feedback at AMI.ca. You can find us on social media at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc., on Facebook, or you can give us phone calls, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. If you do follow us on social media, that's where you'll find our daily poll. Today we're asking you, do you keep an emergency supply kit in your home? If yes, please comment on what it contains. So it's a yes or no question, but please feel free to start mixing it up in the comments section or replying to the tweets or retweeting with comments or quote tweeting or sharing with your friends. Sharing is caring. Let's bring in Nizreen Abdelmajid and Ramya Amuthan to find out what they think about this daily poll. Nizreen, you strike me as someone who keeps a prepared kit in your life. Do you? Do you keep an emergency preparedness, 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 easy for me to say, preparedness kit in your home? I am going to disappoint and tell you that, no, we do not keep a supply kit. The most we have is a first first aid kit, and, uh, yeah, it's pretty embarrassing. But now that I'm seeing online, people are selling it. But I'm curious to know, where do you put your supply kits? So I, they're big. So I, well, mine's not that, that big. I, I keep it on a shelf in my kitchen. Just it's I, I keep some very simple oh. things in there, a flashlight, a lighter, um, a couple of protein bars, a little bit of water, and an AM radio, or at least a, a Walkman radio and some AA batteries, just so it's something that can kind of get me through real quick in a, in a tricky situation. And there's a little shelf in my kitchen. I, it's behind my candy. So every time I eat candy, I know that I'm prepared for an emergency, and that's where I keep it. Uh, Ramya Amuthan, what about you? Uh, same with Nisreen. I'm not very prepared. I do have a really good uh, first aid kit for humans and dogs, because Glizzy. Um, and this I prepared a couple years ago, like basically when I first got him. And I'd say that's the closest to emergencies I'm prepared for. And the thing is, too, Dave, um, I've been starting to eat more fresh and therefore have less cans in the house. Even if I had to grab cans and get out of here, I have like very little non-perishable items in my house to choose from. It's a little scary when you think about it. See, look at this. Your healthy lifestyle has its dangers. I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, it doesn't need to be a lot, right? If you buy a a couple boxes of protein bars, those will stay good for a couple of years, right? right? Those are things you can sort of keep around. Protein bars, cliff bars, granola bars, sort of whatever your preference is. That was something that hit me during the pandemic. 
I don't know if you guys remember that Friday. I think it was March the 12th or March the 11th when it seemed like maybe all heck was about to break loose. And I had only just recently moved. So I hadn't done quite the full-blown, what I would call the infrastructural supply stock up in my place. And I ran to that grocery store on Friday and got Mm -hmm. like two loaves of bread and a bunch of cereal bars and a bunch of non-perishables that I was like, because we didn't know at that time. We thought, oh, my gosh, like, they just, like, soldered people into their apartments in China. What happens if they solder me in? Yeah. It's true. There are lots of moments like that, even throughout the pandemic. But I still, uh, part of me was like, but are we doing this for real, though? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. especially when you started mm-hmm. hearing about how drastic it got at the grocery stores with toilet paper and all these other things. I was like, mm, do I really want to be a part of that fear? Because it, 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 it plays a game with you mentally as it well. It does. Yeah. Yeah. That I was... was in denial. Yeah. Go ahead, Nisreen. Yeah, I was I was saying I was in denial. I mean, maybe not stocking up and getting all those supplies that are important for real life situations, emergency kits and things like that. I think we were in denial to be like, as you said, Remya, should we be part of that fear? I don't know if this is all for real. Maybe people are just, you know, I I don't know if I want to live in fear like that, but it's not living in fear. It's just being prepared. It's being prepared. Yeah, there's a big difference, right? It's one of the balancing acts that we walked a lot throughout the pandemic as broadcasters of what is the difference between sort of relaying information and trying to stoke fear. And it's the same thing today with this hurricane that's expected to hit Atlantic Canada. You don't want people panicking or like getting into shoving matches Mm -hmm. at grocery stores. But the fact is the government of Nova Scotia is encouraging people to have three days worth of supply on hand and in a sense it's our job to make sure we're relaying that information it's not our job to tell you how severe that hurricane may be we leave that to meteorologists and experts who can actually offer insight but it is critically important that we're passing along that information and certainly having these conversations in good faith about do you make sure you've got five cans of tuna or as our friends in newfoundland and labrador would say some storm chips i'll never forget when kim thistle told me about a snowstorm out there a couple years ago where she made sure to have her storm chips ready and it made me so endeared to both Kim Thistle and the people of Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. And that's why the location, I think, sometimes, if not divides us, it, it makes me think like, oh, over there, they have these challenges or, you know, Atlantic Canada. We talk to Kim Thistle regularly on Kelly and Company. It's the same thing, right? Um, that She describes winter so differently than we do. But what happens in Toronto when you get a storm? You feel unprepared. Yeah. And I mean, we, we had that in January. Remember the second week of January? We exactly. had like two feet of snow that fell overnight. Nobody knew what to do, not even how to get off the the highways. Yeah. Was, I didn't was, even have proper boots. Uh, see? That's how yeah. See? Yeah. See? Yeah. see? You know what? I'm changing my whole perspective on Nazarene. Totally unprepared. I fear. I, know. For, I fear for her ducks. I fear for her ducks in case of emergency. He had a whole vision about my uh, my life. No, you were. <laughs> it's you shattered. had the opposite. It's shattered. It's totally shattered. Uh, Nazarene, have an awesome weekend. Thank you, you too. That's Nisreen Abdelmajid. Ramya, you don't get to go away just yet because you're also the co-host of Kelly and Company, which comes our way at 2 p.m. Eastern time. What's on deck for the show today? So this is kind of an interesting segue because if you're thinking of empty shelves on uh, at grocery stores potentially there will be no more empty shelves, at least at Walmart, because they're using artificial intelligence to keep the shelves stocked. And John Peeler has the scoop on that. Oh, cool. The 
I know. I'm very interested about this. Finally, a way that, uh, you know, I can get on board with robots and AI. So the Helen Keller Center is building a new housing complex in the Toronto area, the GTA. And Karen McGee is going to fill us in on those details. We're also talking to Ryan Huey. He's telling us about um, a party. It's called a garden thank you party. And it's to celebrate and recognize the volunteers in the industry so not just the narrators and the authors and the publishers but the volunteers there's a ton of them and uh they're being they're being shown gratitude well nothing says gratitude like a nice garden party so you have a great show Mm -hmm. today ramya have a wonderful weekend and we'll catch up with you next week you too dave that's ramya i'm within the co-host of kelly and company coming your way 2 p.m eastern time on ami audio coming up next Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access will run through this year's finalists for the Writers' Trust of Canada shortlist. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown. Today we've discussed international relations, the economy, representation in film, emergency preparedness. Let's head into the weekend on a much brighter note as we bring in Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access. Karen is the communications manager there, and we'll take a look at what's going on in the world of literature. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning. It's nice to have you back. Yeah, I feel like it's been a million years since last time we got to hang out. So I'm really happy that we get to wrap up our broadcast week chatting with you. Karen, let's start in the world of literary news. Rick Mercer, that's a name people know, won the Leacock Medal for Humor for a book you highlighted in the past called Talking to Canadians. So what do you make of this win? Well, it's not surprising. I mean, he's a national treasure, right? So the book is very interesting. It's a memoir. Uh, It's more personal than some of the books that he's written. We kind of get a little bit of a glimpse into his childhood. We get some behind-the-scenes takes on some of the interviews that he's done with um, different politicians like Jean Chrétien and some of his more famous clips. Uh, And it's it's just a really um, personal opportunity to, to read about him. We don't really know the man behind the the facade sometimes and so i think people are really intrigued by it i'm not surprised it won the leacock is this one available in multiple formats from sila it is we do have it in human narrated um which is you know the most popular one that we have uh most popular format that we have so yeah it's ready and and waiting for people who want to dig into it I was playing in jest earlier this hour talking about how there's too many literary prizes. We need to get on board and pick two. You know, there's like the Oscars and there used to be the Golden Globes and that was it. But it seems like every time we're talking to you, Karen, there's another prize being handed out to authors doing incredible work. And earlier this week, the Writers Trust of Canada announced the shortlist for both nonfiction and fiction titles. So let's start on the nonfiction side, the Hillary Weston Prize for nonfiction. What are some of the highlighted titles here? So there's five on the list, and I'll just run through them quickly because we have a short show. So there's The Invisible Siege, The Rise of Coronaviruses, and A Search for a Cure. There's Nothing Will Be Different, which is a memoir by Tara McGowan-Ross, and she's um, a philosopher, uh, and she's a bit of a party girl, and then her life turns on a dime, and we get to see the in, sort of the behind-the-scenes impacts of that. There's Making Love with the Land by Joshua Whitehead. Folks might recognize his name, and he sort of explores Indigenous um, identity and queerness and relationships between body and land and language. Very uh, esoteric book. It's, it's um, I think it's 
probably one of the winners. That's my guess. It will be the winner. Um, the Long Road Home on Blackness and Belonging by Deborah Thompson. She's a, a leading scholar on the politics of race, but this is a personal memoir for her. And then the last one on the list is The Petroleum Papers, Inside the Far-Right Conspiracy to Cover Up Climate Change. So a very diverse collection of books to read. Um, and Not a lot of, of people that are really well-known in this particular one. Joshua Whitehead aside, maybe, but um, I kind of love that about nonfiction books is that you get to be exposed to people that you might not otherwise read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if they're taking bets on the Writer's Trust shortlist or the Writer's Trust winner at uh, ProLinePlus.com, <laughs> but Karen's prediction, Joshua Whitehead, <laughs> take that to Vegas and see what I you can get. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, move over to Mar- the Margaret Atwood Prize for Fiction. Who are the nominees who made the cut on this side? So there's five again, uh, and there's interestingly, there's two translated works on this list. I'm not sure we've seen that before. So the first one is Manon by Riam El Khoury, and um, this is a, one of the translated works, and uh, it's a, um, a story about a woman that visits her ancestral home in Turkey to, uncover, un, or to uncover her family's past. This is a debut novel. The next one is Some Hellish by Nicholas Herring, which is about a, a lobster fisher uh, fisherman who's facing sort of a boring mundane life until he cuts a hole in his living room floor and life changes. Sometimes I want to be in the the heads of the authors to find out where they get their inspiration. Anyway, so there's that one. Then there's Corel, uh, Corel of Roberville by Kevin Lambert. And this is a novel set in Quebec uh, about a young person in a northern lumber town who moves there and sort of sets up a, a chain of events. There's Ezra Ghosts by Darcy Tamois. I hope I said that right. Um, and it's a story about different characters dealing with fantastical circumstances. It's a short story collection. And the last one is Her First Palestine uh, by Saeed Kebi. And again, another short story collection revolving around the uh, experience of Palestinian, Palestinian immigrants to Canada. So again, not a lot of really well-known authors on this list, which I think is a really interesting approach. Um, and I, you know, it's kind of nice to see new authors being featured and taking some spotlight. So mm-hmm. looking forward to seeing to seeing how this one plays out. And that's what pushes against my whimsical thesis about saying, just pick one <laughs> list because we need to recognize a lot of emerging authors as well. And that's where these literary prizes are so, so helpful. Karen, when are we going yeah, to find exactly. out about the winners? We will find out about them November the 2nd. The Writers' Trust does a big gala and announces the uh, both the winners for the fiction and the nonfiction prizes. Very so you've got good. a little over a month to read. Get busy. <laughs> Get busy. Get cracking, turning those pages. <laughs> well, Karen, you make it hard because not only are you are you highlighting some of these nominees, every week you also offer us featured selections from the CELA Library, this time with the theme of International Daughters' Day, which is on uh, the fourth Sunday in September. And the first one you wanted to offer up your thoughts on was 111 Trees, How One Village Celebrates the Birth of Every Girl. Yeah, so this is actually a children's book, but I thought it was an important one to bring forward in part because it sort of embodies the reason we have International Daughters' Day. Um, and you may know the story. It's a story of a, a man, his name is Shyam Sunder Palali, and he's known sort of as the father of ecofeminism. And he, um, his daughter died of severe dehydration, uh, and in um, he was in India. And so he was just heartbroken, and he wanted to do something to honor her. So he started this 
program where basically he um, he contracted with parents and they would plant 111 tree saplings every time a girl is born. Um, you know, there's a lot of gender politics issues. There's a, you know, boys are the, are the favored gender in a lot of these sort of cultures. And he really wanted to change that. And so through the course of his work of planting 111 saplings every time a girl was born, uh, he not only changed the way that his village viewed women, but he also changed the environment around it and, and mm. prevented future, yeah, prevented future droughts. So it's a really, it's, this is a children's book. It's a really lovely, it's a gentle introduction to it, but it's, you know, it does get into some of the, the politics. Um, it's a great thing for, if you want to be talking about, you know, the interweaving of politics, and gender and environmentalism, all those sorts of things with a young person in your life. It's also just really a lovely story about a father's love for his daughter and what he does to honor her. Let's move on to This One Wildlife, a mother-daughter wilderness memoir by Angie Abdu. Right. So folks may know Angie. She was um, the author of the Canada Reads finalist, The Bone Cage. And so this is a personal memoir. She's written one about her son, and now this one's about um, her relationship with her daughter. So she's quite disillusioned about the over-competitive organized sports, and she's quite concerned about her daughter's growing shyness. She's hitting sort of her tween years. So she sets herself a challenge for the two of them. They decide that they're going to hike a peak a week over the summer holidays. They live in the mountains of BC. And so Abdu has somewhat idealistic expectations. It's going to be this really lovely moment to connect. And um, if you have kids, you know that sometimes your idealism doesn't always turn out to be the reality. So the book really um, digs into lots of different topics. It's not just about hikes with her daughter. They start, they talk a lot about social media. Abdu herself has um, sort of been a victim of the idea of cancel culture and it's really affected her mental health so they use their hikes to um, sort of mitigate some of those kind of negative factors happening in her life Um, we also get to see the impact of the role of hiking on her own mental health on her relationships with her her kids and her partner as well Um, she's well she's well researched this book so we get not only just sort of her opinions but she throws in a fair amount of of insights based on on research i think it's a really lovely book you don't have to be a mother you don't have to be a hiker you don't have to be a daughter to get a lot out of this book it's really about finding connection in nature the dangers of social media addiction and the goal to live kind of a more mindful environmentally conscious life so i i like this one That's a message that I think could resonate with a lot of folks. Karen, we've got another one here. It's a young adult novel, Throwaway Daughter by Ting Jingye. Yeah, so this is a historical fiction take on uh, what happens with the Chinese one-child policy on a family. So it's about international adoption. Uh, There's a young Canadian, the the main character is a young Canadian teenager. Uh, She's you know, happy to live her life as sort of a typical Canadian teenager. And then she has an assignment in school. She's asked to write a personal history, and she needs to figure out how to fit her own adoption story into fairly structured boxes around personal history. Um, And so that gets her thinking. And then there's um, a news story about the massacre on Tiananmen Square, and she realizes that she needs to know more about her own uh, her own history. So after high school, she travels to China to try and find her parents uh, and learn more about what happened. So the book's told primarily from her point of view, but we also get to see first-person accounts of her adoptive mother, the birth mother, uh, the birth mother's family, the birth father's family, and the woman who took in uh, Grace and worked to get her adopted. So we get to see um, 
sort of personal accounts of how this policy happened, how these decisions um, to, to give up a child are made and the, the reasons and the sort of the history behind those. So it's not preachy at all. It's actually quite informative. It's beautifully written. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, we really need the pers- first person account to understand it. It's one of those sorts of stories that if you're looking from the outside in, you're really not getting the full picture. So I really love this book and it's, you know, it's an explanation of what it means to be a daughter, what it means to be a mother, what it means to be um, loved, what it means to be chosen, what it means to be given up. So really a beautiful story. Karen, I have to hold you to about one minute on The President's Daughter by Bill Clinton and James (laughs) Patterson. So this one, if you um, know Bill Clinton and James Patterson, you could probably figure out exactly what this story is all about. Uh, Michael Keating is the president. He orders um, an attack on Libya on one of the world's most dangerous terrorists. The attack kind of goes sideways. At the end of the operation, the terrorist's wife and daughters are dead, but the the terrorist has escaped. And so um, as a result, Keating's political prospects tank. He's not re-elected. And then the terrorist comes back and um, for revenge, he kidnaps the president's daughter. It's it's one of those books that's kind of bold and brash. You can totally see it as a made-for-TV kind of event. The plot moves quickly. The book is formatted like a typical Patterson novel with really short chapters. There's lots of little cliffhangers. Um, and I think if you want fast-moving, it's definitely engrossing. It may not be completely believable from start to finish, but it's thoroughly enjoyable if you love political thrillers. Karen, in less than 13 minutes, you just highlighted 15 books. Well done (laughs) by you. I don't know if I have enough brain capacity to take all of those in. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Thanks so much. That's Karen McKay, the communications manager for the Center for Equitable Library Access. That's all the time we have for the show today. It's all the time we have for the show this week. But we need to give a lot of love and thanks to the people behind this show. You hear people on the air like Alex Smythe and Brock Richardson. The people you don't hear from are people like Andrika Delanerol, Bruce McLarian, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion Jones, Daniel Penamondo. You do hear from Eliza Rocco once a show, which we always appreciate. Those are the folks who put the hard work in behind the scenes to make sure the show gets put together on a day-to-day basis. And we always like to express our gratitude to them at least once a week on the air and we try to off the air as well. Big thanks to our technical team working behind the scenes as well in the IT department. And of course, the managers above us. Until we hang out again on Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-TV. I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-TV. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.